So we're going to be going uh, to Mark chapter 14 tonight. And if you've been tracking with us, that's quite a jump from Mark chapter 5. Um, I think it was a little ambitious to think we could cover Mark in a semester. Um, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to talk tonight, basically two stories, but they fit together. Uh, the story of Jesus being anointed with perfume on his head by this woman who breaks her jar of perfume over his head. And then the Last Supper. And, and what does that mean? As we're driving to the cross. And the Gospel of Mark really does kind of follow this theme. The first part of the book is Jesus as prophet. Jesus as the teacher and miracle worker, right? Um, and then it gets, I think it's in chapter 9, where Jesus says, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you are Jesus. You are the Christ. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Right. And then he begins to talk to his disciples about how he needs to go to the cross and die. And that's where Peter says, no, no way. And then Jesus says to one of his best friends, get behind me, Satan. So fun times. Uh, We're now in Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem, and it's now the Passover feast is two days away. That is the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar. It's the time when the crowds would have been huge. Jesus' reputation has been growing, and the religious authorities are pretty freaked out. But they have a dilemma, because they don't want to make him a martyr, and they don't want to upset the crowds, but they need to do something about him. So that's where we're picking up the story in Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, which is pretty close to Jerusalem, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival on Love and Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that this really happened. Lord Jesus, we pray that the significance of this night that we've just read about 2,000 years ago would impact us afresh tonight. Because it changes everything. It changes everything. Help us to see and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. So I already mentioned the way this chapter starts. There's a dilemma. The religious leaders have this dilemma. One of the things that's fascinating is in all the Gospels, the closer you get to the crucifixion, the more the Old Testament is quoted as having been fulfilled. It actually, the rate of quotes increases the closer you get to the cross. Why might that be? I think it's important, not only for us, but it was certainly important for the early Christians to remember that this event that just seemed so awful, the one who they thought would deal with the Romans and usher in the kingdom of God, did just what God had planned. And so the frequency of the references to Old Testament uh, passages that are fulfilled by what happens increases. I actually think that's really helpful because I, I think sometimes in our, when we're struggling, when we have things go the way we didn't hope that they would go, disappointing things, it's really important that we remember that God did not fall asleep, that God is still on the throne. And I just think it's fascinating that it's obvious for the disciples that this comforted them tremendously. When they thought back to this story, at the time, they don't know what's going on. They're clueless, right? They don't understand why Jesus thinks that this woman breaking a jar of perfume and pouring it all over his head, why is that a good idea? Why isn't that a waste? And Jesus says, because you won't always have me with you. They still don't get what he's driving at. He is driving to the cross. You see, the religious leaders want to basically deal with him quietly. They don't want to have everything kind of blow up, as you will, 
at this religious festival, which had the highest, you know, the biggest crowds of the year. And yet, that's exactly what God intended, and that's exactly what happened. What God intended is what happened. Now, let's look at this anointing. He's at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. This is um, a fascinating story because you see that the disciples and the other people there, I assume the disciples are probably part of this, um, they don't get it. They see it as waste, and Jesus sees it as beautiful. And, and, and I love the words that Jesus says here. Like, do you, under, do you see what's going on here? Jesus says, I deserve lavish love. Like, if you don't think that Jesus knew that he was God, like, you, don't, you can't make sense of a passage like this. Like, if he's just a good teacher or a mere man, this is crazy. But he, he doesn't do that. It's like when he heals 10 lepers as they're going down the road. One of them comes back, falls at Jesus' feet, and worships him, it says in the Greek text. And Jesus does not say, get up, you blasphemer. I'm just a man. Yeah, I know I got cool powers, but I'm just a man. No, he says, where are the other nine? They should be worshiping me too. Okay? So don't let anybody tell you that Jesus did not claim to be God. He did it explicitly, and he does it implicitly all the time. All the time. And this upset everybody that was there, right? This, this breaking of this perfume, anointing him. And here's what else is really interesting about it. Is the only time you would anoint somebody before death is if they were a criminal who was going to be executed. The Jews anointed bodies after death, except for criminals. Criminals were anointed beforehand. So there's probably even a foreshadowing there, right? Now, when I look at this, I, I do have to like think about my own life. I remember when I became a Christian, I came out of um, a church background where we didn't really talk much about our faith. Um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I know there's other people here that have grown up in that tradition as well. We didn't really talk about a personal relationship with Jesus very much. We went to church, and we did the Book of Common Prayer, and we did the worship and whatnot, but, but we didn't really talk like real familiarly the way a lot of evangelical Christians do. And I remember the first time when I was in high school and somebody told me you needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus, I remember thinking, oh, let's not get carried away here. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, I remember, even though I was convinced the gospel was true and I needed to, to pray that God would forgive me for my sins and throw myself on his mercy, I, I also knew that um, some people I knew, man, they went to Bible studies like every night of the week. And I was like, okay, I'm not, let's, let's just kind of keep this thing in, in, in sort of proper perspective, you know? So when I come to a passage like this, it's always a rebuke to me. Like, I would not be the one pouring lavish love, what might even seem wasteful, on Jesus' head. And, and what, I, what I want to say is, sometimes we can limit what love for God looks like to what we feel comfortable with. And I know it's a challenge for a lot of people. They get here, they find Christians that maybe are much more outgoing and vocal and demonstrative in how they practice their faith. And I meet with students sometimes, they're like, whoa, that kind of freaked me out. And I'm like, well, yeah, I might disagree with some of the things, like they're you know, prophesying over you and whatnot. We could talk about that over coffee if you want, why I would have concerns about that. But 
Don't limit it just because it's uncomfortable to you. Like, go to the scripture. What does the scripture say? And um, lavish love, Jesus says, is appropriate. And he actually defends this woman from those who are wanting to, to criticize her. I love that. Because here's one of the places where you actually get to hear Jesus defend somebody. And we all need to hear that. Do you know, Jesus defends his people. We're going to sing this hymn before the throne of God above to close tonight. Jesus is the one who defends us against all the charges of the enemy. Martin Luther, you know, we just celebrated Reformation Sunday. Martin Luther, you know, he said some crazy stuff and he did some, some things that were less than great. But one of, one of the things he was really helpful in understanding is just the sheer audacity of being a Christian. Uh, he said one time, you know, when, and I put the full quote on the back here, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it for you. It, basically, if the, if the devil comes to you and says, you're a piece of crap, like, don't argue with the devil. <laughs> Say instead, yes, devil, you're right, and it's actually worse than you know. <laughs> but go take it up with Jesus, because he died in my place. I've got nothing to say to you, right? I love this old hymn by John Newton, um, who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this other hymn back in the 18th century. Approach my soul, the mercy seat. Verse 3 says this. Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By wars without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Right? Do you know what it means to have that kind of confidence? If you're a Christian, you should have that kind of confidence because Jesus is in your corner and Jesus is the one who will defend you. Because what does Jesus have to base his case upon? He took the death you deserved and he lived the life you should have lived. As Charles Spurgeon, quoting an old hymn, said one time, upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why Martin Luther said, faith is a living, daring hope in God. Lavish love, and Jesus defends it. But Judas had had enough. He's not into this. Now, why did Jesus betray Jesus? There's several answers. One level, there are scriptures that speak about how it was God's plan, right? But you see this combination of God's sovereignty and divine, uh, or sorry, and human responsibility. Judas did a wicked thing, but it did not, it did not happen outside of God's plan. I don't know how those two things fit together. But the Bible clearly teaches all over the place divine sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. And this is one of those places, right? This is one of those places. Judas has enough. Now, I don't think he's just greedy. What we learn from the other Gospels is how much he got for betraying Jesus. And do you know how much it was? It was 30 pieces of silver. Well, you don't know what that means, neither do I. But the Bible commentaries tell us that that was the amount, if you killed somebody's oxen or slave, that was the amount of restitution that you had to pay. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. So I don't think he did it for greed. I think 
Judas, we have good reason to believe, was a zealot. The zealots were the ones who felt that they needed to take up arms against the Romans. More like guerrilla warfare terrorists against the Roman oppressors. And I feel like at this point, Judas is finally realizing Jesus does not share my agenda. And he's not happy about that. I know a lot of people that find themselves in this place. I signed up for this, and Jesus doesn't seem to share my agenda. And that raises a question. Does your agenda need to change? Or does Jesus? Well, Jesus isn't going to change. Because he has planned good plans for you. And so Judas realizes his agenda is not going to be realized, and it seems that he just decides to get whatever he can out of this. He's done with Jesus. He's done with this agenda of Jesus, the king of the Jews, the one who's done all these things. He's raised people from the dead for crying out loud, and he's not going to use any of that power. He's going to basically stop using it and let himself be crucified. What in the world? How does that make any sense? And so Judas says, I'm out of here. Jesus is seen as being of so little value to Judas because Jesus doesn't go along with Judas's agenda. And brothers and sisters, we are so vulnerable to that. We are. Beware of sitting in your disappointment and letting it harden your heart. My encouragement is to cry out to him and be open, stay open to his plans. Like I said, as you get closer and closer to the cross, the the quotes of the Old Testament get more and more because it's so important for us to know that this thing that looks crazy was exactly what God had planned. Judas couldn't deal with it. Well, the preparations are made for the Passover. Now, it's important to understand the Passover meal, and I don't have time to get into all the details, but it was a meal that was first celebrated During the Exodus, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, they had done all the plagues and that didn't work. Still, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And finally, God sent the destroying angel. And the people were to put blood over their um, doorway as a sign that their faith was in God. And the firstborn in every house, unless there was a sacrifice and blood over the doorpost, was killed. And it was awful. And God's people were commanded to remember that every single year. And you know what's interesting? They didn't just do an empty ritual. Part of the ritual included a young boy asking a question, what is this about? So built into the ceremony was you need to understand that God brought us out of slavery. And we can trust him. And they did this meal over and over and over again. There actually were four cups. And we're going to talk about that in a second, because the Last Supper, Jesus drinks the third cup with them, not the fourth. And I'm going to explain why that matters. But he, um, you know, what you see here with all the preparations, we don't know. Did Jesus prophesy about the guy being there and the room being all prepared, or had he arranged it beforehand? It doesn't really matter because one way or the other, Jesus, again, is in control of everything that's happening here. So now they're eating. The meal's going along fine. 
And then Jesus always does this kind of stuff. <laughs> Everything's going along fine. You know, back in John chapter 6, he's got the crowd following him. He turns around and says, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And people are like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, listen, you know, even the Romans thought cannibalism was abhorrent. They did all kinds of crazy, like, worship practices, temple prostitution, all kinds of stuff. But cannibalism, that was too much even for the Romans, Right? And that's what Jesus seems to be saying. And here again, he's going to, in just a minute, he's going to say, drink my blood and eat my flesh, right? But first he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, I I want you to just try and set yourself in that, in that place. This is an intimate setting. It says that they're reclining. You know, they didn't sit at tables like we do with chairs. They had a a low table. They're reclining on all these couches, on these uh, sofa, like pillows that are all over the floor. And you can... Um, you're basically like on one elbow and you're eating, right? And you're all close together because you're like passing the bowl and you're dipping the bread in it. And he says, one of those, one of you who has dipped bread in the bowl with me is going to betray me. And I think what's fascinating is every one of them <laughs> feels like it might be me. That's what I love about that hymn, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. If you don't feel like that's within you, well, it is. Apart from God's sustaining grace, it is. And again, it's one of the things that makes his grace so amazing. But the point here is that one that he's trusted, one who's been with them from the beginning, is now going to betray him. And we'll talk about that uh, next week. And then we get to the Lord's Supper. What's the Lord's Supper about? Now, man, if you've ever studied any church history, you know there are lots of different views and lots of different debates about the Lord's Supper. Most of them center around what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my blood? Like, what does that mean? Is it a metaphor? Does it actually become his blood when the priest utters words of you know, uh, institution, whatever. I, I don't want to get caught up in all of that. Uh, if you want to talk about it sometime, I'll be glad to tell you, you know, my view. Um, I think the main things that are important here, what seems clear and is actually pretty clear in every tradition, even if they differ on some details, is that Jesus wants his followers to commemorate his death until he comes again, Right? Now, what's interesting, you may not know this, but the words, this is my body, had no place in the Passover ritual. So the Passover meal was very carefully scripted. But the words, this is my body, that's Jesus going off script. Because what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is just as God delivered his people at the Passover in Exodus, now the greater Exodus has come. Because those people that were delivered from Egypt, well, you remember them in the promised land, how they're murmuring and complaining about God. Why'd you bring us out here to kill us? Right? It didn't fix their hearts. But Jesus has come to do a work that will change our hearts and make us beautiful in God's sight. And it's going to involve his body being broken and us partaking of him. We must see how this connects, of course, with the Old Testament, right? It's it's the Passover meal after all. But here's the heart of it. Jesus understands 
that he is going to die a violent death to inaugurate the covenant. Just as Moses shed blood to inaugurate the covenant between God and his people in Exodus 24. And you can look at that later if you want, right? And, and when the Apostle Paul in, t- tells to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper, he, he uses this fascinating phrase. He says, whenever we eat this meal, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. So here's where I want to press in a little bit on, the, on what the Lord's Supper is about. It's not merely a memorial. The power is not merely in in us trying to remind ourselves of what happened. Though it's important to understand what happened. It does commemorate Jesus' death. But what Paul tells the Corinthians is, when we eat this meal, we proclaim his death. That means the gospel is preached in a picture in the Lord's Supper. It's not merely a memorial. And just as the Spirit works through the Word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Paul says in Romans 10. So when the Lord's Supper and baptism are celebrated, we see the gospel preached in a picture. And and, and Jesus meets us there in a mystical way. It's not just about you remembering something that happened. Jesus actually meets us in the supper. John Calvin, who generally was a pretty like logical kind of theological guy, when he got to the chapter on the Institutes in his great classic book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says about the Lord's Supper, I can't explain it. All I can do is say that at times I felt like I was carried up to the third heaven when I've partaken of the body and blood of Christ. And theologians ever since have been like, what? (laughs) No, explain it. He's like, I can't. Jesus meets us there. Just as the gospel preached, the word and the spirit work together to create faith in our hearts. The Lord's Supper is a really big deal. But as I said, there are four cups in the Passover meal. Jesus uses the third cup, the cup of blessing it's called, to inaugurate the Lord's Supper. And he says that he's not going to drink again from the fruit of the vine. That means he's not going to drink the fourth cup that you were supposed to drink at the Passover meal. That's called the cup of promise. And it's the, it's the cup that goes along with the words from Exodus 6, I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you recognize those words? We've talked about it before. That's basically God's marriage proposal to his people. So that fourth cup, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink until I'm with you again. And when will that be? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, sometimes theologians talk about this idea of the already and the not yet. Have you heard this idea? Already Jesus has come and put sin to death at the cross and paid for our sins. But not yet do we see everything under his feet. Not yet are we healed all the way down. This is what we call the already and the not yet. Already, if you're a Christian, you're beautiful in God's sight. And he can't love you any more than he does right now. But not yet are you what you will be one day. But here's the amazing thing. We live in that already not yet tension. What Jesus is saying here is he lives in it too. Jesus lives in the already not yet tension. Jesus is not just up there 
like perfectly happy, everything's fine. He's not like Buddha. You know how the Buddha is always pictured? Eyes closed, smiling. Jesus is weeping. Do you know what he says to the Apostle Paul when he breaks in on him as he's on the road to Tarsus? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's like, what? Jesus is already resurrected. Seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, I'm still being persecuted. Because when you persecute my body, my people, my children, you're persecuting me. In the end of the book of Isaiah, God says that he's like a woman in the pains of childbirth, screaming and panting until all things would be made right. So don't ever think that Jesus is just fat and happy somewhere while you're down here suffering. Jesus is also experiencing the already and the not yet. He's not yet getting to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, but he will one day. And whenever we gather, right, we proclaim his death until he comes again. The supper whets our appetite, but it never, it never satisfies us. That means that being a Christian means living with unfulfilled longings. You can't get around it. You can't get around it. I know, trust me, um, I love to try to kill my longings. It's a much more comfortable place to live sometimes. But being a Christian means living with unfulfilled longings and Jesus gave us a meal to remind us every week that we can't yet have all that we were made for. That's what this is about. And then Jesus leads him in worship. Man, wouldn't that have been awesome? Well, we do know what the Psalms for the Passover meal were. And you can go back and read them. And it's worth reading them and thinking about Jesus leading his people singing these Psalms. Psalm 114 through Psalm 118. Go back and read those maybe this week for your devotional time. And think about Jesus singing these the night of the Last Supper at the Passover meal, because that's what they would have done. Psalm 18, 118 says this, I give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Oh, how Jesus needed to know that as he's about to face the cross and how, how his disciples needed to know that and how we need to know that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have a strong and perfect plea We thank you for your love that endures forever. The death cannot end because death actually sealed the covenant and set us free. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.